How was that? Was that all right for you guys? Yeah, I thought that was really good. I mean, honestly, well done. Um, it's sometimes a little uncomfortable for people to do that kind of stuff, but, but honestly, that's, like, that's the gift of, of the church, right? Is that at the very least, we can be a people who just can kind of share what's going on in our life with, other pe- with the other people in the church and just to pray for one another. At a basic level, we can do that. So appreciate you guys. We're going to continue to to do stuff like that, I guess, whether you like it or not. So, until eventually you like it. Which may be never, but you know what? That's okay. We'll keep doing it, because it's good practice. I mean, part of it is what we're going to talk about today, is if you can't share your faith, like a basis, can't share your heart with someone in the church, which is the safest place to do it, at least in theory, and I definitely think here, you guys are good people, and you're sincere. And if you can't share your faith with people here, then you won't share your faith with people who are dying, right? Um, and who don't know Jesus. And so it's just an opportunity to train. A little bit we talked about that last week. But all that to say, you're going to dive in this morning, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. The prophet Habakkuk writes, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I love that verse, that last verse especially. Um, So I want to start by sharing with you my call into ministry, how it started. Some of you guys know this story, some of you don't. That's okay, I'll share it because I think it's worthwhile. Um, it won't be too long, I promise. So uh, I was in Columbus, Georgia at the time. I was going to, it was a free Methodist church actually, but um, that's a whole separate story. But great church down there in Columbus, Georgia. Um, and I was in the infantry officer basic course at Fort Benning at the time. So I was there for about a year total. This was September of 2000. 12. And we, they had, this church had like a missionary come. He was from Australia or New Zealand or something. He talked kind of like, you know, like he was from there. And he was from there, actually. But he also had the accent to match, which makes it legit, right? And so he was sharing about global mission, the call to missions, right? And he was preaching on the Great Commission, you know, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I will be with you until the very end of the age, right? You guys have heard that. It's like this kind of catalytic call to missions. We use it sometimes to like get people to do what we want them to do, right? It's like, Jesus said it, now do what we said. No? Okay. All right. So just me sometimes then, that's okay. Um, But so... He was talking about that verse, and he said that when it comes to the Great Commission, you are either going on it yourself, you're either sending people and supporting people on that mission, or you're being disobedient to the command of Jesus. Going, sending, or disobedient. And it kind of got me. I was like, ugh. (laughs) Because he's right. At like a very basic level, he's right. Right? The, the mission of God is not like an optional thing that a few special people are called to do and participate in. It's something that everyone who follows Jesus is invited and called into. And so I got to thinking about it, and you know, here I was. I was in the infantry officer basic course. I had kind of the next set few years of my life planned out. 
I didn't have a lot of money, so I couldn't really sponsor missionaries, which is what, one of the things they were talking about. And I couldn't go on a mission trip, sort of locked down. US government had that taken care of. And so was my only choice then to just be disobedient? I mean, I couldn't go on a mission trip to South America or Africa, so what was I going to do? You know, I had this thought came into my mind. Um, what if you were just a missionary right where you are? It's a crazy idea, novel concept, never before thought of in human history. But it's just this thought that came to my mind. So that next week, we were in the field. We were doing some kind of field exercise for a week. So out in the woods with, uh, at the time, it was only men who were in the infantry officer course. And so, you know, had like 30 other guys out in the woods for a lot of time. And so naturally, the conversation goes to what? It's the two things you're not supposed to talk about in polite society, politics and religion, you know? And so I realized that week that a lot of opportunities presented themselves just to share my faith, not browbeating people, not smacking them with Bibles, not trying to walk the Romans road, just telling them why I believe what I believe. That was it. And I realized that actually made a difference, meeting people where they were and just seeing my life as being a missionary to people right where I was. And that started something in me that I became aware of years later, of just the idea of being an everyday missionary, which arguably is exactly what Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission. He's not really talking about going to Indonesia or Peru or Ghana, as wonderful as those things are, but if you're not willing to go across the street then he's not impressed by you going across an ocean either. And so we're talking this week about what it means to live engaging in God's mission as an everyday missionary. We've been going through this, this series. We've been looking at the, God's vision for the church and Jesus' way of life. And there's essentially four core values that we looked at, how Jesus lives his life and what his followers are called into. Right, the first is seeking growth in the love of God, using disciplines to practice the presence of God, sharing fellowship, which we talked about last week, and then this week is engaging in God's mission. A lot of questions that maybe come with that, especially when we use that language. But we've got to remember, too, that the church exists for the purpose of discipleship. Discipleship is God's gift to human beings to become who they were created to be. As we follow Jesus and apprentice our lives to him, we grow in Christ-likeness. We grow into the image of God in which we were created. Discipleship is God's gift for the world, and it is why the church exists, to be the community of disciples who are doing the Jesus stuff, right? So to make this practical, I wanted to take some time today and to avoid going for 50-ish minutes, which I guess maybe you could tell, maybe you can, I don't know, I'm a little passionate about sharing fellowship, like maybe slightly passionate about it. So I could, I, honestly, like last week, I could have talked for probably two hours easily. Like I, I could have kept going um, until dinner time. And then, I, and then we've just gone over to my mom's and then had dinner. And not everybody probably. I mean, I don't, maybe, I don't know. Um, but this week talking about engaging mission. So I wanted to kind of focus this a little bit with what we call five missiological principles. That's a fancy word. It's really not too scary. Missiology is just the study of God's mission, right? So the study of God's mission. So five principles about God's mission that I think will be helpful for us. And they're kind of sequential and I think helpful. Okay. So the first one, the first principle about the mission of God is that God is a missional God. He has a mission. 
He doesn't just exist kind of out there, maybe theoretically, and doesn't really get involved in human life. Our God is the God of mission. He is engaged in human life. He does not leave his people alone. He doesn't leave his creation on its own. And so when we talk about mission then, what exactly do we mean? Is it just doing nice stuff for people? Certainly that's good. Is it feeding people when they need to be fed? Uh, Wonderful. Is it just evangelizing in terms of the way that we sometimes think about it? You memorize a thing, a pitch that you give to people and then you hope it sticks? Some of that can be helpful sometimes. What is God's mission? Well, I like that text from Habakkuk, which is why I shared it. Uh, I really like verse 14, right? It's kind of this picture of God's new creation. The earth shall be filled, this earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, with an awareness of God's glory as the waters cover the sea. Is water wet? Does anybody need to step outside and test that theory? (laughs) Okay. The earth will be filled with the knowledge one day of God's glory as the water outside is wet. It is just a fact of reality. Whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, it's true. That's the essential claim of the Bible, that this is just the way things are. And either you align your life with that or you don't. It's up to you. Um, But there's this guy, M. Scott Peck, he was a psychiatrist I find particularly helpful. He said, mental health is simply a dedication to reality at all costs. And so part of the reason why so many of us sometimes struggle with mental health is because we just simply aren't living in reality. You know, if you think about what anxiety is, it's fear at its core, but it's fear about something that doesn't even exist, you know? We're living in a fantasy world of our own creation. It's not to put you down or demean or turn you great or make you feel bad or ashamed, because trust me, I feel anxious plenty. But the, the truth is that it's just we live then in a fantasy world of our own making that's not actually true. It has not come to pass. There is zero guarantee that it will. You live in a world where you are cared for and secured in God's hands in his kingdom. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and everything else will be taken care of. All that was a preamble to get back to Habakkuk. Okay. Habakkuk says, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. We live in a broken world. Earthquakes in the Middle East and Turkey and in Syria and wars ravaging people and food shortages and artificial intelligence and who knows what else, right? We live in a broken world. And the thing is, is that we know that. It's very intuitive. Look around. It's obvious. And so our then response is that we want to try to fix it. Anyone, anyone a fixer out there? I'm a fixer. I think that if something is wrong, I've got to fix it immediately, now, right? And not have patience to trust that it'll get worked out. I need to do it right now. Like, what's wrong? Are you okay? Let me fix it. It's not the best posture, right? Habakkuk continues, Has not the Lord Almighty determined the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? It's not that your work and activity is bad. And a lot of times it's it's necessary. You were called to do things created by Christ Jesus to to do God's handiwork, to be his handiwork in this world. But the thing is, if we rely on our solutions to very serious human problems, well, we will only ever have human solutions, which will only ever fix things just a little bit. But it will not solve the problems. So Habakkuk continues. For one day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This world is broken. Our efforts to fix it won't do it. 
but it is okay because one day God is going to make all things new. He's establishing his new creation. And one day every square inch of this world will be filled with the glory of God. That's the claim that Habakkuk's making. And it is central, I think, to our understanding of God's mission. Right From beginning to end in Scripture, God is sending his presence and his people into the world to convey this new creation. Right from Adam and exercise dominion over all the things of the earth, all the way through to Revelation, to the people who will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, to, the, to this picture when the new Jerusalem is descending and heaven and earth are coming together and the new world that God is making is being realized. From beginning to end, God is sending his presence and his people into the world. So very practically, Jesus explains it like this in Luke 4. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me, quoting the prophet Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is sent into the world by the Father to do the kingdom work, to bring in new creations. Why Jesus' message is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. His rule and reign, or God's activity in this world. It's right here, right now. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, right, um, our Father who art in heaven, where is heaven? The kingdom of heaven is now at hand. It is right here, right now, available to you and accessible to you. Right? So keep that in mind. This is part of what Jesus is pointing us to. And, And I think when you think then about what is happening when we talk about mission, about God's new creation being realized in this world and the kingdom breaking into this world, remember that the motivation behind all of this is love, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. For God so loved that God gives. See, that's what the slide says. Principle number two, then, is that Jesus is sent to the redemptive edge in this world. Jesus was not sent to make bad people good. He was sent to confront the kingdom of darkness and to be the light of the world. There's a cosmic war that is happening, and Jesus is sent to confront darkness. Leslie Newbegin, 20th century missiologist, said this, I think the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. At its core, mission is not just about like activity that we do over here, apart from like personal spirituality and piety. Engaging in God's mission is just it's the same thing that we've been talking about, just being with Jesus. Right? If you're going to be with Jesus, then it doesn't mean that you just sit around and just kind of think nice, happy thoughts in your study. It means that you are going with him. There will be times of silence and solitude and deep personal spiritual practices. But then if you're going to follow Jesus, there will be times where you are engaging with him in the battle against evil. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's where he is. You want to ask the question then, what is Jesus doing in our world? So I got this chart here because you're so into charts. And I do appreciate that you are liking these charts. So this chart I actually got from John Tyson. This is a redemptive edge. And so over here on, the, on this left-hand side, you see this is the fallen edge of humanity, right? And that right against that, we sort of live with just a status quo of comfort. You know, we're comfortable. 
And a lot of times in our world, this is where we kind of land, right? We're comfortable. We want to be comfortable. We want to just feel good about ourselves. From comfort, we move to caution, right? When you, start to, when you look at Jesus' ministry, right, people started to be a little cautious about Jesus. Like, what's this guy really up to? Can we trust his intentions? Moves quickly into concern. I don't know if this guy's really the Messiah. I don't know if this is really good. This seems blasphemous, which then is a short step to criticism. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. How can he be righteous and holy? You know? This doesn't make any sense. He's doing stuff that the Messiah shouldn't do. But then we get to the redemptive edge, the confrontation with darkness, the confrontation against the Pharisees and the religious elite with their religious pride and their arrogance, thinking they had it all figured out. The confrontation with the demonic, literally calling it out and saying, get away. The confrontation with human brokenness in every place that it's found. This can be the big stuff that we think about, but it's also very small stuff, too. Small stuff within me as well. So we think about the redemptive edge. This is the place where we move from comfort and caution and concern and criticism into confrontation with the darkness. And I think one of the things that's hard for us is sometimes we feel kind of bored with our faith and kind of bored in mission because we're not actually living at the redemptive edge. We thought that Jesus is like, you know, we, we take that verse like he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we think he's kind of like a fluffy, plush toy that Mary snuggles in bed. You know, and you're just kind of like, oh, it's my lamb, my little lammy. And I just got him, and he's fluffy and nice. But that's not the picture of Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sin of the world, who is the same Lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? He's not like a domestic house cat. He cannot be tamed, and he will not be. And similarly, he can't be put in a box in the corner of your house, metaphorically, of your religious life, where there's your spiritual life over here. And then I've got my family life, and my work life, and my sports betting life, and my rest of my life, and then my, my bro life, and then whatever I've got. Not a lot of you guys have bro life, that's okay. I talk to a lot of people who do. Right, where you've got this spectrum of things where you've got your boxes, that is not who Jesus is. He will not fit in your box as the tame house cat. The lion of the tribe of Jews just won't do it. And so we want to see ourselves as, as seeing where Jesus is, right? Being sent to the redemptive edge of humanity. He's not staying in comfort. Rather, he leaves the comfort of the kingdom of heaven in its fullness and comes, incarnates as a human being, and confronts the darkness that's present in this world. Is that helpful in any way? It's helpful to me. C.T. Studd put it like this. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. The truth is, is that sometimes we don't mean to, but when we're content to live here in comfort and caution, and we don't really want to move beyond that, we see people every single day who don't know Jesus, and whether their lives are a wreck or not, or whether it's living out of alignment with reality or not, or whether we just see brokenness in our families or in our friends or in you know, co-workers or colleagues, we are content to just kind of sit over here in comfort and caution. We don't want to push any, we don't want to push any boundaries. We don't want to make anybody upset. We just want to sit back and you know, be nice. And you might as well be saying to those people, you can go to hell. I do not care about you. 
right? Just a thought. Floating it out there. I want you to consider what Jesus says about what he's doing. In Luke 7, Jesus says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, you criticize me, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus came and ate with sketchy people who the religious people said he shouldn't be hanging out with. Jesus, in Matthew 20, said that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life was oriented outward towards other people, not what he could get, not what made him happy, not what made him feel good, but how he could serve other people who were far from God. Jesus explained it like this in Luke 19. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Anyone who is living in a life that is out of alignment with reality is lost. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. To be with Jesus means you're doing what he's doing, you're going where he's going, and you're going to the redemptive edge. It's not always as scary as you think, because you will come across this every place that you are in every corner of your lives. More on that in a minute. Which is principle three. You are God's strategy for reaching your world. We want him to like send a lightning bolt and to just zap it and make everything better, and sometimes God works in ways that are like far beyond our comprehension and understanding. The truth is, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you have the spirit of the living God in you, then you are God's strategy for reaching your world. You are the person he has put in that place to evangelize those people. You are the person he's put in that place to carry the kingdom wherever you go. You are God's strategy. Leslie Newbegin, again, said, Believers participate in Christ's priesthood, not within the walls of the church, but in the daily business of the world. Right? We're sent out by Jesus, what he says in John 20. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus was sent into the world in a very particular way, right? To confront the kingdom of darkness, to seek and save the lost, to eat with sketchy people, to introduce them to his kingdom, to, ser- to serve and not be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. As the Father sent me, Jesus said, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit. Not that they could be happy and just comfortable, but they could participate in his redemptive mission in this world. We are sent into the world by Jesus in the same way the Father sent him, out of a motive of love. And so I want you to think about your world, right? Think about your people. Think about your places that you go. Another chart. I know you love it. This was helpful for me. Think about it in terms of first, second, and third spaces. So your first space is essentially like the place where you spend the majority of your time. Uh, it, it's basically like your place. So it's your home. It's your neighborhood. It's that space, your first space. If you have a family, then it's your kids. It's your grandkids. It's those people. Uh, maybe it's your neighbors, you know? It's the people who live in that kind of immediate first space, the place where where you are least guarded and just most at home. That's your first space. So think about how is Jesus sending you into that space, to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors? How are you being sent by him into that place? What do you have to give? And trust me, you have something to give. There is brokenness in that place. And you have an opportunity to participate in God's mission in that place. So think about your first space. Your second space is maybe the place where you spend like um, the next most amount of time in your day 
that's not your home. So like if you work, then this is work. If you just have like a place that you go to, maybe it's like the senior center, you go there every day, that's a second space. Second space is just a, that, that kind of transitional place between where you spend a lot of your time, but it's not your home. It's kind of your home away from home, you know? That's why work is this for a lot of people. So how are you sent by Jesus into that space? To bring his kingdom there. And this is where it gets hard for people because you have to be really creative. Because you say, well, I can't say stuff in this space because it's not mine. Well, listen, that's okay. Because people, before they listen to what you say, they look at how you live. And, and the truth is, I have never, in all my time in the army, and in all my time in every other aspect of my life, I have never asked someone, hey, can I pray for you? And then say no. Never happened. <laughs> Am I just an anomaly? Maybe, I don't know. But you would be shocked by how many people who aren't even religious, who don't even believe in the God that you're praying to, will say, you know what, yeah, I'd appreciate that. Because at least they know it means something to you. So it's one small way you can participate in God's mission wherever you are, no matter what people are saying. And listen, at the end of the day, no one can keep you from praying, right? Whether, no matter where you are. Because to pray, all, what do you have to do? Just to be with the Lord and to lift your heart to him, right? So, Second space. Third space, then, is kind of the, the places where you interact with people at the broadest level. So think like gyms or coffee shops or restaurants or grocery stores, that kind of place. We're just out in the public sphere, right? That's your third space. So think about how in all of those spaces, every part of your life fits into that in some way. You are sent by Jesus to bring his kingdom and to engage in God's mission there. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you're feeling like a little overwhelmed right now, like this is really hard and I don't know that I can do this. But I just want to remind you, this isn't about doing more stuff. It's about seeing and asking, Jesus, what are you doing right here in this place? Jesus, what are you doing in my home? Jesus, what are you doing in my workplace? Jesus, what are you up to in this grocery store today? Is there anyone you got for me to just to, to meet with? Maybe it's just as simple as like helping someone take like something off a top shelf at the store. You know, it's little stuff, but just being aware of that you are sent by Jesus into that place for a purpose. And it does require a shift in thinking, especially the first space. Many of us have been taught and trained, and we talked about this some last week, that our life is our life. You have your private life, and then you have your public life. But that's not the way that Jesus functions. You don't have like your kind of private, personal, spiritual kingdom, and then the rest of stuff just doesn't really interact. It's just, you just be yourself everywhere that you are. And so it requires a shift from, from thinking of home and thinking of neighborhood as private space to thinking about it as mission base. It's mission command, you know? So that's one, honestly, one way is to think about that there's a lot of people out here, and how can I invite them? in deeper to the core of this, to the core of my life with God. Just being with people and inviting them into your life. And it can honestly be as simple as just sharing your life with them. Just think about that. You are sent by Jesus into your daily life. Principle number four is what we call contextualization. Again, fancy word, but it's basically what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some is that what matters most is not me, but you. 
What matters most is not my preference, but what is the Lord doing in your life? What matters most is not what I prefer, but what love requires me to do. A couple examples of contextualization. I think contextualization is the reason why pitches and evangelistic approaches so often do not work because they disregard the context in which we are. You know, there may have been stuff that worked to evangelize people 30 years ago that will not work today. It's not going to work. You can try it. It's probably going to make people just be turned off by you, to be honest, especially a lot of young people. who like, I mean, you know, TikTok is a major influence in people's lives, whether you like it or not. It is. So you've got to think about the context in which you are connecting with people. A couple of examples of this, a very popular one um, and somewhat well-known, was the Jesuit mission. Anyone heard of the Jesuits before? Catholic Society of Jesus, St. Ignatius of Loyola, founded um, in the 1500s, I believe, but Jesuits really pioneered this in the 1600s. Uh, what they were known for, and there was a movie about it, um, their work in Japan. Does anyone know the, the name of that? No? Okay. I don't know. Never mind. You can look it up on Google, I guess, if you want to. Jesuit movie Japan. Or don't. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Disregard. It's a rainy day. I thought maybe, you know, after... Lacaretta, you have some queso, you're all full, you need to make, have some sweet tea, you go sit on the couch, watch this movie, I don't know, never mind. Do whatever you want, do laundry, I guess. So, just trying to help, guys. So anyway, the Jesuits became very well known for, for really pioneering this strategy, the idea of contextualization. They realized that when they wore their clerical robes and they went to places like Japan, uh, rest of Asia or Africa or the Middle East, and they wore their clerical robes and they tried to get people to speak Latin, it just didn't work. It didn't work. So they adopted the culture, they learned the customs, they adopted Japanese dress, they learned the Japanese language. Right? This is what we think of as like very commonplace when you think of a missionary to a foreign country today, right? Learn the language, learn the culture, learn the customs. It's contextualization. Uh, at its core, it means you identify with the group or the person, and in sacrificial love, you adopt new methods to connect with them. A couple other examples that are pretty easy to see throughout church history. One is the example of Bible translation, right? Scriptures originally written in Greek and Hebrew, and yet what? Do, how many of you read Greek and Hebrew? Most of you do not, right? And what, what do you have your Bibles in? In English, it's contextualization. It's translating the message, not changing it, but translating the message to actually connect with you in a meaningful way. Uh, another example, and a, and a pretty easy one, is church music. Right? We like to think sometimes, I mean, we've been doing, I'm really grateful for this kind of blend of music we've been doing, and Josh and Becky and Vicky figuring out a way to, to help to, to connect the music that we're doing with people's hearts in the world today. Because we like to think of traditional music sometimes, you know, you have an organ, and we're singing, you know, Amazing Grace with the pipe organ in the background. Guess what? That was cutting edge at one point in time. Absolutely cutting edge, groundbreaking Never been done before. And you know what people said about it? You can't do that in church. What are you doing bringing an organ into church? Get out of here. We sing a cappella, as in the chapel, as in the church. Okay, so we start with Gregorian chant in the 4th and 5th century. Anyone Gregorian chant today? Anyone? No? Okay, you can. If you do, that's totally cool. It's on you, man. You, you sing in your heart language, I guess. Gregorian chant, we move from there to, to other things like... Let me pull it up here. Um, 
with the Renaissance and the Reformation, right, you have this kind of like high, high church music. You then move like into the Bachs and the Handels and the Mozarts, right, like Handels Messiah. I mean, beautiful, wonderful, pretty hard to pull off in a church service today. Wouldn't you agree? But at one time, that was cutting-edge music. Right, think about just the different stuff that has happened throughout church history. Charles Wesley wrote 6,500 worship songs. I mentioned this before. He wrote 6,500 worship songs that were new, brand new, never been heard before in the 1700s. And you know what he did? He set them to the tune of drinking songs, pub songs. Right? You look in our hymnal. I mean, do this sometime. You look in the hymnal, and you'll see that most of the hymns, they have a date for, the, for the, when the words were written, and then you have a date for when the music that we're singing was composed. And most of the time, they're not the same. Why? Because originally, those songs were contextual. They were written to connect with the people in a certain time and certain place. And then we get a hold of them, and we say, well, that's not, that's not churchy enough. It's not, you can't just sing that in church. Can't sing, what would you do with a drunken sailor tune in church? But Charles Wesley did. Right? Why? Because for him, it was more important that the music and the lyrics connect with people's hearts and that we just simply put on a particular form. And I know that this is like hard for people. And he's like, but I really like this stuff. It's like, good. Well, there's other people who don't. And so again, remember, the principle of contextualization is that our preferences and priorities are not the most important thing. What really matters is who Jesus is sending us to. Are we willing to change what we like and what we're comfortable with to confront the kingdom of darkness where people are enslaved by the lies of hell. Principle five. Fellowship is the training ground for mission. So I'll go through this briefly because I don't want to, you know, get too carried away again. Uh, But in 1722, there's a small group of religious refugees who in the aftermath of the Reformation Wars of the 17th century settled in this place called Bethelsdorf at the estate of this guy named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. That's a mouthful, he's German, you know, you go with it, right? German nobility. They established a new village there called Herrenhut. By 1727, this community had just become this place where it was just a ragtag, motley assemblage of people, you know? Uh, all sorts of refugees. From all, it wasn't just these religious refugees, it was all different kinds of people who had been pushed out from where they were uh, for a variety of reasons. And Zinzendorf realized there was a problem. These people didn't like each other, and they couldn't get along. And part of the whole um, original settlement was that, you know, we want to be a community where we're really living as followers of Jesus. Herrenhut means the Lord's watch in German. So they wanted this to be a community where, where we were really doing this. We were doing the Jesus stuff. But then they were fighting and arguing, and they just could not get along. And so Zinzendorf called a meeting. And in that meeting, there was something that happened. There was like this powerful sense of God's presence, and the people, quote, learned to love one another. Shortly after this, they began a 24-7 prayer meeting that lasted for 100 years. They divided up into shifts of 48, 48 shifts, so about a half hour each, and they prayed nonstop for 100 years. It kept going. Didn't miss a day. Some of the lasting legacy of the Moravian missionary movement is that began a daily devotional in 1720s that still is in print to this day. It's a new one every year, still going. 
to this day. The Moravian watchword is what they call it. They built over 30 settlements globally, similar to uh, the original model at Herrenhut. And from this village of never more than 300 people, you listen to this? This is important. From a village of no more than 300 people, the population never got higher than that, over 100 years, they sent out over 1,000 different missionaries to all the corners of the earth. So, you know, don't ever say we're too small to make a difference. Right? Because it doesn't take much. It just takes a mustard seed. And the Lord will use it to his purposes and to his effect. But the idea there is what we talked about here, is that fellowship is the training ground for mission. They learn to love one another. They learn to share their faith with one another. They learn to bear one another's burdens. And in doing that, in practicing that, in different layers of community and small groups, they eventually were able to do it with total strangers. And they were eventually compelled by the power and the love of God to go to people who didn't know him because they were so affected by it, by their lives. The church is always meant to be the training ground for our engagement with the world, never just for us to feel good about ourselves and what we're doing. Close with this. Um, so first, a quick story, and then John Wesley, and then communion, okay? Just so you know, you won't miss Lacaretta, I promise. So this last week, um, I got a solid news. Anyone heard about what was happening at Asbury University this last week? Yeah, I know you did. Okay, so... Um, in February 1970, at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, uh, there was this revival that broke out there. And essentially, like, you know, a lot of times we think of revival, we think of, we schedule revival, put it on the calendar, say, there's going to be a revival in three weeks. And then we schedule speakers and music for each night, and then we go, and it's really good, and we feel encouraged and strengthened, and it's awesome. But then it's like, you know, what next, right? Well... Genuine revival isn't something you put on a calendar. It comes on God's timing and when he decides. So in February 1970, there's a chapel service at Asbury University. Um, a student in the middle of that stood up and just confessed to like cheating on a test or something, which then began a cascade of eight days of nonstop prayer and worship in the auditorium. The chapel service kept going for eight days. From there, I mean, people were sent out to all different kinds of places. A friend of mine, mentor of mine, Joe Green, who did our wedding, Joe got saved in a meeting that was led by a student who was sent from Asbury University during the revival, <laughs> right? Joe was a college student at King at the time. And then he eventually went to Asbury Seminary, we felt called the ministry, and the rest was history. But the idea was that there was this revival that happened, people were sent out. Well, this last week... Um, on Wednesday, actually, there was a chapel service at Asbury University, February 2023, um, and the chapel service started at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, and it's still going. It hasn't stopped. College kids, would you believe it? This generation that, you know, not many in here. It's not that they don't want it. Because remember our very first message in the series, we talked about God comes where he's wanted. It's not that we don't want them either, but I just want to say, remind you, there is hunger out there. And there are people out there who are hungry for the power and the presence of the Lord. And oftentimes he comes in ways and times he least expect. And oftentimes it starts in the student section. Um, watch a college football game, watch a college basketball game. Where does the wave start? You know the wave? Wow. Where does it start? It doesn't start in the alumni section. It starts in the student section. 
God is doing things in our world. And the question that we always must ask is, what is God doing in our midst? To whom is he sending us? What is he doing? And then we get on board with his program, not doing stuff and saying, God, come on, bless it. Now, having said all that, John Wesley said this. He's talking about the general spread of the gospel, he called it. He said, in general, it seems, the kingdom of God will not come with observation. He says, as wonderful as it is to have these big moments of revival, these big powerful experiences, that's not generally how the kingdom spreads. He says, in general, it comes without observation, but it will silently increase wherever it is set up and spread from heart to heart, from house to house, from town to town, and from one kingdom to another. You are sent by Jesus into your world. And the way that that kingdom will spread is from heart to heart, from house to house, from village to village, and kingdom to kingdom. You are his strategy for reaching your world. And so I really want you to think, just think about that. Pray about that. And know that, you know, you have been called for this by God at this time and empowered by him to do it. You've got everything that you need. Everything that you need. You just need your heart. So I'd like to invite you to pray. We're going to share communion together. And then we're going to go out from here and, uh, and go on with our week. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your sending presence in our lives. I thank you that you're not content to sit in the comfort and in the, the, the grandeur, but that you empty yourself, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human likeness. You became obedient even to the point of death, a horrific death on a cross, that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bend, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, would you do it in our lives? Would you stoke the flame of revival in our hearts? And would we see ourselves as sent by you into our worlds? I just ask, Lord, that you would bring to mind maybe a people or situation or, or just something that you